0: you and your household. All who believe in this household will be saved. Now, it it is fascinating that if you go on to the next verse, the next several verses, which are often skipped in gospel presentations, is that it says, and Paul took them into the house, and entered into the house, and explained the way of the Lord to them. Because how did the Philippian jailer know who Jesus was? How, How did he know what that meant? He was a pagan Gentile living a Roman, most likely, living in the city of Philippi. He might have heard the gospel, but probably not. So, Paul proclaims to him what is necessary, and then explains what it means.
1: Hello, and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church, located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Riser from the Book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday, weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text.
0: kingdom must be entered. By the way, just to remind you of how radical that was to the Jews, remember? We might think as Americans or as those born into a Christian family that we are part of the kingdom, but the Jews thought that a thousand times more strongly than we ever will. We are God's ethnic people. We have the Old Testament. God led us around. He brought out a remnant. He brought us back from captivity. He's preserved our nation. We have our temple. We are in the kingdom. If anyone's in, we're in. And they believe that with all of their hearts. In fact, they really believe they were the only ones who were in. And if you became a Jew or entered into Judaism, you might get in. But they were in. And so this is a radical message to them. What? We have to enter the kingdom? And of course, it really, again, it's it's so similar to all that we go and witness to, isn't it? I'm already in the kingdom, as it were. I already have what I need. Whether it's entering into the kingdom of God or whatever kingdom that, that, that you know, they believe is coming. or are driving down 495 on the way home and there's this massive structure that rises above the trees, carefully placed, carefully built with, with white spires and gold on top. What It's the Mormon tabernacle. The, the, the height of Mormonism. They have a kingdom. They believe they're in the kingdom. They're already there. And yet what the king said is you are far from the kingdom, you need to repent and believe. And he says that to every person you must enter, regardless of what other religion you claim, what ethnic background you have, what socioeconomic position you hold, everyone has to enter the kingdom. And that kingdom has a standard. There's not just anyone that can enter this kingdom, and certainly not just any Jew The condition of the inner man must be right before a man is fit for this heavenly kingdom. And again, this is what the Jews did not well understand. Some did, certainly. It's there in the Old Testament. You can see it. That is the circumcision of heart, as it is mentioned in the Old Testament, not just the circumcision of the flesh, not merely the ethnic nationality, that the heart must be changed, that it must be softened, that you must receive a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. It's all there in the Old Testament. And there were many Jews... At least some Jews who believed, who truly believed in God, who entered into the sacrificial system with an understanding that they could not be right before a holy God. And so they needed those sacrifices so their sin might be covered because they needed his righteousness. There were some who understood that. But most didn't. In our day and age, it is the same. Whether it's Jews, I believe we were out witnessing, or the group was out witnessing several Saturdays ago, and, and I believe it was Ron who, who ran into some Messianic Jews. We're not at all interested in pursuing the things of Christ through the truth of God's Word in the kingdom already. Now, the kingdom has a standard, and not just anyone may enter. And that standard is, there are many things we could say about the standard, but first and foremost, that is a standard of humility. As we begin the Sermon on the Mount in several weeks, Lord willing, Matthew 5, verse 3 says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who have nothing to offer in and of themselves. Blessed are those who, who recognize in their inner man that is their mind, their, their intellect, their will, their volition, their affection. They're in all of those ways, they recognize, I have nothing to give. I'm bankrupt. I'm poor. I'm a pauper. I'm a beggar. All I can do is reach my hand, as it were, when it comes to my ability to enter into the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if there's one thing that Americans will not accept, just as Jews would not accept, we are not poor. We will refuse to believe that we couldn't offer something that we couldn't give somehow of, out of our own store of riches. We will bring out of our own ability, out of our own righteousness, we will present that to God. And that's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. Look at our righteous lives. Look at what we have accomplished. Look at our obedience to the law. Look at our external righteousness. We wear the right clothes. We go to the right synagogues. We read the right Old Testament. We know the right God. We seek to even bound His law with more laws so that we look even better. We're in. We have met the standard. And Jesus says, only the poor in spirit. Over and over, he tells the Pharisees, because you think you're rich, you're poor. Because you think you're righteous, you're wretched. And the same message goes out to us today. Those who think they are rich are poor. Those who think they have much to offer God have nothing. What does Jesus say to the church at Laodicea? He says, you think you have much. You think you can see you think you are clothed but you are miserable and blind and naked receive from me clothes receive from me sight receive from me riches humility is required and it's the one thing that a man can never do on his own please don't misunderstand when i say the kingdom must be pursued that i somehow think that a man in and of himself and on his own can humble himself he cannot he is incapable it is the work of god in the heart of man. and we pray that that would be the case. We pray that the Lord would open His eyes to help Him to see His His absolute bankruptcy, and that takes great humility because no one wants to be nothing. No one. And when you tell people that they are, they reject it out of hand. But I, I would I would say that we wrestle with this understanding all of our lives. Yes, we need it to enter into the kingdom. By grace, the Lord provides it for us through the power of the Spirit. As we seek and pursue, and even as believers, what do we struggle with? Perhaps most of all, we're still something. Somehow, we, we, our pride is not erased fully, and I wish that it was. But we constantly think that we are something, and we go proud and arrogant. And you can hear it in our tone. Sometimes our tone when we present the gospel Sometimes our tone as we as we try to, to present to others truths that they need to hear, or somehow we, we, we seem to think that we have attained, that we have accomplished, and we are arrogant. Would it be that we as a church, we as individuals, never express the kind of arrogance which, if it were true or complete, would have kept us from the kingdom? And we never return to that, arrogant believers. Instead, we are humble, we are poor in spirit. And along with that, humility it's not, not enough, by the way, just to be humble. See, even some might say, well, we'll accept that. We'll buy that, that you would have to come humbly before God. We, we could understand that. But there's another part to that humility, and that is that you must have perfect righteousness. Not only humility, not only a recognition of your bankruptcy, and the fact that you are, are tainted with sin in every part, that you are deserving of eternal hell, that you are in desperate need of the work of God in your heart, but you must come into this kingdom with perfect righteousness. It's the only way in. So as you stand before the gates, if you were to enter into the kingdom, the first thing that you would be asked is, are you perfect? Are you, do you have a standard of righteousness that equals the state of an eternal, infinite, and holy God. And everyone who says no, regardless, or if they say yes, and they don't have it, regardless of what they say they possess, if it isn't perfect righteousness, they will be rejected. There's absolutely no chance, not one in a million, in, in an infinite number, there's not one chance that you would possibly enter in without perfect righteousness, because God himself is perfect, and he is completely just. And he cannot violate his own character and nature. And his kingdom cannot have anyone in it who is not perfect. This is his standard. And anything less would mean that he wasn't God. He would cease to be God at the moment that he let someone into his kingdom who wasn't perfect. And we need to remind people of that. When I go door to door witnessing and we get to the end of our, our presentation, and, and it always works down through to something they're clinging, unless they've come to Christ or they come to Christ while we're talking, they're always clinging to something about themselves that is good. And I try to end it as often as I can when, when, when I'm able to say, I just, I want to plead with you. I want you to understand that I'm about to leave this door and, and you still think that somehow you will enter into heaven or, or whatever state at the end of life that, that will be, be acceptable to you somehow think that you're going to get in. I just want you to know that there is no way possible you will ever enter in because God is just and he is holy. Please try to wrap your mind around the fact that there is nothing that will allow you to enter in. Matthew 5.20, except perfect righteousness. Matthew 5.20. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.48. Therefore, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. There is no possibility you will enter the kingdom unless you are poor in spirit and perfect in righteousness. This is the standard of the kingdom. But I ask you, would you desire any less? Would you desire that God would be less than God? Would you somehow turn God into a man and think that that kingdom would be something worth living in? Imagine for all of eternity living under an eternal despot, an infinitely powerful, unjust ruler. It would be hell to live under that kind of ruler. Someone who is not perfectly just and who would violate his own character and nature to allow those into his kingdom who are not perfectly just, who do not have perfect righteousness. You would not enjoy that eternal life at all. But thankfully, we have a king who is that way. And number three here, this king must be personally received. You see, the additional shocking understanding that the Jews needed to know and that we need to understand is that entrance into the kingdom requires a personal relationship with the king. This is not simply a business transaction. This is not something just do. you sign a few papers and, and you, you know, you get you get your passport, maybe, and, and you get your your immigration papers and you say the say a pledge and you enter into citizenship, knowing nothing really of the king himself, the king not really knowing you much at all. And by the way, that's what removes any hope that you could somehow slip in unnoticed. And maybe you sign the paperwork and it crosses his desk and he doesn't really notice and pow, he stamps it and you're in, as often happens in our own country. (laughs) And as happens in many countries around the world. It's not just this one. There's a great chance that coming to America, you might just get in and no one would notice that you weren't actually part of this kingdom. And maybe even noticing, they would just say, hey, it's okay for you to stay. I'm not talking about immigration policy here. That's not for this discussion or anywhere near the pulpit. But I am talking about entrance into the kingdom. And somehow we think that maybe it'll just get rubber stamped. No, you have to have a personal interview with the king. You sit before him, as it were. And he says, have you, will you accept me? Will you receive me as your king and as your lord, as your master, And will you receive the work that I have done for you as your only hope, your only chance? Will you take all of what is mine and give up all of what is yours? And he asks you this personally and individually as he looks you in the eyes, as it were. He says, I am the king, bow before me, worship me, honor me, receive my sacrifice on your behalf that I gave to you because I love you. I died for you that you might enter. Don't mistake, says the king. My grace is sufficient for you. It's extended to you, but you must receive me. And anyone who steps out of that interview saying, I will not receive you. I would love for you, king. Imagine this, sitting in that interview. I would love for you, king, to give me all of your riches. Oh, king, I would would love for you to give me all the benefits of your kingdom. In fact, I'm, I'm asking that of you. Give me everything. Give me eternal life. Provide me an inheritance. Give me prosperity on this earth. Help my family to be good and my schooling to be excellent and my job to be successful. I want all of that, but I want nothing to do with you. I will not come underneath your rule. I will not obey what you say. I will will give mental acknowledgement to the fact that you died for me, but I will not live in such a way that acknowledges that. I will live on my own. So here I am, King. Let me in. I'm sorry but you won't get in. You will never enter the kingdom that way. The king must be personally received as it were. he must and by that reception, what I mean is that that you must you must believe what he has done for you. Let's just step down through this. The only way to be rightly related to the king is to change the course of your life into conformity with what he has commanded and who he truly is. The only way to receive the king is to agree with and meet the standard that the king requires in order to have a right relationship with him. You see, you don't receive the king on your own terms. I'll take you if you do this. I'll take you because I want this. You receive the king when he says, will you bend the knee before me on the basis of who I am? So this involves a belief in his person and work. Really, this is the flip side of the gospel, is it not? In Mark, we record that Jesus came saying, repent and believe in the gospel. It's essentially the same to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here, you must receive the king. The only way to receive the king is to believe in what the king has done. All of that is bound up. You can just say it a variety of different ways. But the for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is the flip side of repent. You've got to enter in. And the only way to enter in is to believe in the person and work of the king. Acts 16:31. When the Philippian jailer cries out, What must I do to be saved? the Apostle Paul And Silas there say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. All who believe in this household will be saved. Now, it it is fascinating that if you go on to the next verse, the next several verses, which are often skipped in gospel presentations, is that it says, and Paul took them into the house and entered into the house and explained the way of the Lord to them. Because how did the Philippian jailer know who Jesus was? How, How did he know what that meant? He was a pagan Gentile living, a Roman, most likely, living in the city of Philippi. He might have heard the gospel, but probably not. So Paul proclaims to him what is necessary and then explains what it means. Just saying the name of Jesus is not sufficient, you must explain his person and work. That is, he is the God-man. And this is the greatest point of contention in the gospel against every cult and against every other religion is that Jesus is truly and fully God, fully man and fully God. There can be errors on both sides. And if we were to walk into that Mormon temple, if we were to have stopped there on the way back and, and brought our tracks in, then the primary area of contention would have been this Is Jesus fully God? And we would have had a very short discussion when we said, No, he is fully and completely God, absolutely equal with God himself, not his brother, not the brother of Lucifer, not, not some created being, nothing. God and God alone. And if you don't believe that, you will never enter into the kingdom. Well, our discussion would have been over. You could debate points about spirit babies and about worlds you're going to receive and about, you know, polygamy, worthlessness. Why why even debate any of that stuff? The issue is this, is Jesus God. And if he isn't God, he didn't save anyone. And if he isn't God, that he cannot be received. He's not the king. And you may go on your merry way believing anything you want. Remember Joshua 25? Choose this day whom you will serve. That is, if you choose to reject God, pick your God, pick your king. Because they're all the same, sub-kings, not kings at all. He's the God-man. John 1.1. 1, 1. I mean, I could quote you verse after verse after verse. All I need is this one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Period. End of story. End of discussion. Now, I realize that when you talk with people, you, don't, you, know, you, you can work with them and talk with them about that. But for believers, for those who trust that the Word of God is the Word of God, there is you don't need to go any further than that. You know, did Jesus really say he was deity? Did he really claim? Did he know he was? Come on. It's already declared in the book of John. He was in the beginning, eternally preexistent. He was with God. That is separate in personality. And he was God. That is part of the Trinity. The Spirit is not mentioned there, but the concept of the Trinity is found full-blown, individual personality, complete equality in essence, eternal preexistence, infinite God. Now it says, the Word became flesh then, in John 1.14, and dwelt among us, fully God and fully man. For the true believer, there is no question, but if you do not believe this, you're not a believer. If you do not simply, it's not simply accepting it with your mind, it's being absolutely convinced that this is true, mind, will, and affections. You believe that he is a God-man. You believe, you must believe, in order to receive the king, that he is your propitiary sacrifice. Actually, propitiary isn't a word, propitiatory is. You know, why are you using big words like that? Because scripture does. So write it down if you can get it, if, uh, I'll spell it. No, I won't. Just write it down. Why? Because those words are important. They're used in scripture. I'll, I'll prove it to you. Romans chapter 3, verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. There's so much there. Propitiary sim- simply being this, that Christ bore the wrath of God, rightly deserved for sin, and that if someone, if an infinite and holy God did not bear his own wrath, then there would still be wrath left for sin. There would still be some left over elements of the wrath of God as hatred of sin that would fall on somebody. But no, Christ bore it all. He took all of the wrath of God against sin for everyone who would ever believe for all of time he bore all the wrath. He is the propitiation, the wrath bearing sacrifice. It has also the idea of the sacrifice that covers sin, but that's another word we use. We'll we'll look at that in just a moment. But the primary issue of propitiation is the one who took God's righteous and just anger against sin and drank it fully. That's the full cup of the wrath of God that's the cup into which Jesus was looking in the garden of Gethsemane when he says, take this cup from me. The wrath of God, the righteous, holy hatred of God against the sin of men. And Jesus bore it all for you. That's the king. That's what he did. But if you don't believe that God is angry at sin, if you don't believe that you have sin that God is angry at, then you cannot accept the king. That's repentance. But if you do, then you must believe If you are to truly be saved, you must believe that He alone bore that wrath. There's nothing you can add to it, that there's no other God or system that will somehow enhance His sacrifice, only His wrath-bearing sacrifice. Next, He is your atoning sacrifice. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for sins. Once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. His sacrifice atoned for, paid for your sin, covered it over so that you no longer had to pay that penalty yourself. It was fully paid. He atoned. He's his blood covering your sin. That is his death in your place. Substitutionary atonement, we call it, that he had to die for you. That he had to step into your place so that his sacrifice would take the place of the one that you couldn't give. And that if you had to give on your own, it would be eternal punishment in hell because you could never fulfill it. His atoning work on your behalf. You have to believe that he is that atonement. That he is the one who bears the wrath and covers the sin. It is gone. But only because of his sacrifice. His death on your behalf. And that that is sufficient and that that is exclusive. There is no other sacrifice and nothing to be added, nothing to be added later, nothing to be added added at any time, at any point in history. He is the God-man. He's your propitiatory sacrifice. He is your atoning sacrifice. He makes the full payment for sin. Yes, he bears the wrath, and there is no payment left to be made. And then you must also believe that he is the resurrection and the life. So you believe in his death, And his burial, the indication of his death as he's in the tomb for three days, his body fully and truly died. Even as his spirit went back to be with the Father, perhaps, and it seems to us descending into hell, not to suffer punishment there, but to proclaim victory. I win, you lose to the powers of hell. All that you thought you could get away with, that you, you thought that you would take the Son of God to death. Well, I died, but I live. So he proclaims his victory and then he rises from the dead three days later, John eleven twenty five. As Jesus stands near the tomb of Lazarus, he's talking to Martha. He says, Martha, do you believe that Lazarus will rise again? He says, I believe that he will rise again on the last day. Interesting, there are those who claim that the Bible doesn't, doesn't even New Testament and really Old Testament, because Martha would have still been pretty much an Old Testament believer, that the Old Testament doesn't proclaim the resurrection. Martha knew it somehow. On the last day, we will be resurrected. There will be a bodily resurrection unto life. And yes, Lazarus will rise on the last day. And I believe she said that on the basis of both Martha's and Lazarus and Mary's affirmation of Jesus as the Messiah. They believed that he was the Savior. But Jesus says to her this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Talk about a personal interview with a king. Martha. Do you believe that I am the life? That I am the only one who can bring resurrection? Nothing you do, nothing that anyone else could accomplish, no other religious system, no other God, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, do you believe this? And she said to him, this isn't pointed out often enough. I don't hear enough sermons about this. She said, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. One of the most powerful declarations of the the lordship of Christ, the deity of Christ, and the messiahship of Christ, that he is a savior. Wow. Father says, I believe that. I believe you are the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that this morning? Have you entrusted your life to the only one who is the resurrection, to the only one who can actually provide you with life? Because if he didn't rise from the dead, you have nothing. Paul says, we're pitiful fools. We're dead in our sins. If he didn't rise. All of those things must be believed. That is embraced with mind, with will, with affections, that He is God and men, that He is our wrath-bearing sacrifice, that He did make the full payment for sin as the only sacrifice that could possibly make that payment. He did that on our behalf, and he did that in such a way that he rose from the dead, conquering death and hell. Now, you you know that truth. And yet I would ask you again this morning. Are you in the kingdom? Have you received the king? Have you said what Martha said? Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ. And that's a demonstration of that, Martha, and and on and on down the line, all who have truly professed that. There's a demonstration of that with the life because that's the next point. We are to believe in his person and work. This is how the king is received. And we are to submit to his lordship. Now, these are not separate points. They're, they're the same thing, essentially, because you cannot say, again, to the king, I receive your propitiary and atoning sacrifice, but I reject your rule. You're not my Lord and Master, my Savior only, because you can't break up the offices of Christ in that way. He's Savior to some, Lord to others. How does that work? He's Lord and Savior. You accept Him in that way. And the Bible is clear all throughout the presentations of the gospel that we receive Him as our Master and King, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we receive him understanding that the king was the one who made the proper payment and conquered death. But again, let's be careful here. And are sometimes overly reformed presentations of, of, of the gospel. We tend to come down heavy on the side of justice, and we should, because that is the that is the issue, that is the nature of salvation that is most often left out in the presentation of the gospel in our times today. But let us be careful. That we do not equally emphasize the gracious, loving nature of the God who made this sacrifice, because Jesus didn't forget to mention this. He starts by saying, "Yes, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." Respond to the King, receive the King. I'm here. My kingdom's here. Enter in. But he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, "Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart." And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And not presenting salvation as some kind of fix it or, or, you know, soothe all to the problems of this life. We sometimes leave out the fact that Jesus did come to relieve us from our trouble, to rescue us from our sinful destruction, to bring us to a place where we find our satisfaction and our rest in him. And it isn't found in circumstance we understand that. But when we find Christ, when we come to our Lord and Master, we come as those who are weary and heavy laden and we are given rest. Again, I would say that's essentially the same call as he's already said. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. What does that mean? You recognize that you need rest. You recognize that you are weary, that you cannot bear the load of your own sin. He's not just talking about physical tiredness or difficult circumstances. I will give you rest. Take my yoke. What does he say? You must believe that I am your master. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. But then he says, do this because I'm gentle and humble in heart. No better master, no better Lord, no greater king. And you will find rest for your souls. There is rest to be found. There is rest that must be had. had. And we proclaim that to a dying world. Walking around Washington, D.C., this great, powerful nation. Is there rest in the nation? There is not. Are those who are satisfied and joyful in the nation's capital apart from Christ, there aren't. Oh, pursuing their pleasure, yes. Drowning themselves in their political activity and those sorts of things, plenty. But not those who have found true rest because they have not taken upon them the yoke of one who is gentle and humble in heart. And would it be, or would it never be, that our Savior is found more gentle and humble in heart than we? Is that the kind of call we make to the gospel? Yes, a just and holy God. But our Saviour is gentle and humble and hard, not arrogant and proud, not one who 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 demands in an inappropriate way, but in gentleness and humility calls upon all to come and find rest for their souls. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. The yoke of sin is hard, the yoke of Satan is death. The yoke of our Saviour is rest and life. So in submission to His Lordship, we come to Him as our gracious Master. We confess Him as our mighty. Lord, Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. You've known that verse since you were five, three, two. But are you loving him as your gracious Lord? Are you submitting to his leading? Are you coming underneath his yoke, finding it Gentle, as it were, and easy because you recognize the nature of your Savior. If you fight against the yoke, it's because you don't understand the nature of the one who put the yoke on you. You think he's driving you a direction that's wrong, that somehow he's taking you where you don't need to go. That's only because it's where you don't want to go. And if you understand the truth of his word and what he's done, then you long to go the direction that the one who guides you takes you. And more and more as you grow in Christ, you understand that anywhere he would take you is the best place for you, and you no longer fight his yoke. And I pray that you would do that this morning. This is, again, by the way, not simply a verbal proclamation, Lord, Lord. You know this to be true, and yet so many fail in this way. They just make the verbal proclamation. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Even some who, who understand or who have heard the justice of God and the holiness of God and the reality of the fact that He must be their Lord, Matthew seven twenty one. 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. The reflection, the reality of a acceptance, a belief in the King entering into His kingdom with our intellect, our, our reason, believing in what He's done, our will, directing our hearts, submitting to His Lordship and recognizing that His sacrifice alone is sufficient, our affections directed towards Him to love Him because of what He's done in our hearts. That person does the will of His Father which is God, no longer Satan. And so that becomes evident in the life and not evident through external works in the sense of just things that look good on the outside, but works driven and directed by the glory of God and the power of God according to the principles of the Word of God. So with that in mind, two applications of the kingdom this morning. First, if you're an unbeliever, and there may yet be those who are unbelievers here this morning, then the kingdom is at hand for you. The idea, the concept of the kingdom that it has come and yet has not been fully realized is good for you. Because if it were fully realized, if Jesus had established his kingdom when he came and it was all done, then there's no more getting in, you're out. But the kingdom is at hand. The king is no longer physically present. He is here with his church. He is here in the proclamation of the gospel by those believers who, who are presenting that truth. And he is here And he is near to you this morning. And so enter the kingdom. In repentance and belief. Recognize who the king is. Understand his work on your behalf. Submit to his lordship. Enter the kingdom. You see, there is a brief window in your life when the kingdom is at hand. Present but not yet finalized. It is during this time that you can enter the kingdom. And this time alone. Today is the day of salvation. Why? Because the king could come at any time. He left us with an understanding that there would be a a period of time before he comes so that all whom he has chosen from before the beginning of time will enter into his kingdom. But you never know when that day or that hour is. It could come at any moment. And so the kingdom is at hand for you. Well, not only could the king come at any moment, but you could die at any time. And then the kingdom will be here for you. Either the king himself comes to begin or really to finalize his kingdom, or you enter into his presence, or at least at first you enter into punishment and then later in his presence. But when you die, the kingdom is no longer at hand. The kingdom has come. And when he returns for the second time, the kingdom will have come. So now is the time. Repent and believe in the gospel. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's for unbelievers. But if you're a believer, here's the application of the kingdom to you. Live like a citizen. If that is what you truly are, having received the king, entered into the kingdom, having received the perfect righteousness of Christ on your behalf, that he clothed you with his own perfect, infinite righteousness when you trusted in him. That imputed, we call it, to your account. Granted to you, though, you didn't deserve it. An alien righteousness that is not your own. If you have entered into the kingdom through repentance and faith, then live like that. Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We're in a new kingdom. And as we talked about all week at camp, we reject the vanity of the kingdom in which we live physically. Because everything that we pursue here, apart from the principles of the kingdom and of the king of heaven, is worthlessness. You can come to church in vanity. You might be here this morning, even as a believer, in vanity, not paying attention, not with your heart directed to the Lord. You could be reading the Bible in vanity because you aren't directing your heart for the purpose of your king. You might be doing good works seemingly that are just works by rote, works to gain the, 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 the view of men, maybe even here in this church. I urge you to live like a citizen of the kingdom, joyously giving thanks to the Father, pursuing the works He has given you in His power and for His glory, because you've been transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Philippians 3:20 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of that power which He has, even to subject all things to Himself. You tired this morning? Yeah. It's going to come a day when you're never tired again, as nearly as we can determine, at least not like this. You sick this morning, not feeling very good? There's going to come a day when you're never sick again. Are you still filled with sin this morning? Unfortunately, all of us who sit here have that malady There will come a day when you don't have it at all. When you receive a new body, then the earthly flesh burned away means no more sin nature and the perfection that God has worked in you in the new nature will be the only thing there shining out through a new body, which will be able to reflect the glory of God for all of eternity. This is what you have to look forward to as a member, as a citizen of the kingdom. Stop living as though you were of the kingdom of darkness. And in any way that that has still grabbed hold of your life, might you reject that, pursuing the King of kings and Lord of lords and reflecting the nature of the kingdom in which you truly live. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for our time together this morning, and I thank you for the coming of the King, that you, Lord Jesus, would lay aside the glory of heaven, that you would take upon yourself the likeness of sinful flesh, That you would humble yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. and That then you would be exalted by your Father in eternal life, conquering death. That we might receive the richness of salvation that only you can provide. But I pray that you would help us to live as citizens of your kingdom. For those who have never entered in, that they might enter this morning. Pursuing you, violently seeking after you. That they might enter by the narrow gate. those of us who have entered, that we might pursue you with reckless abandon, taking upon ourselves your yoke, joyfully going where you direct, that your kingdom might be advanced in this world and that your light might be, be shining to those who are in darkness. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen.
1: Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.